Good morning, Journey Church. How y'all doing? Hey, it's a great uh, morning. It was fun to see the the kids up here taking over the stage. Uh, I get a chance to talk to maybe some high schoolers that I couldn't see before, but you seniors that are going out into the world, I just got a message for you. Take your faith with you. Uh, People are going to try to encourage you uh, to set that aside, uh, but be strong uh, in your faith and carry that with you. Uh, throughout your life. You're at a turning point right now, so I encourage you uh, to do that. I want to welcome everybody here. If you're a guest, if this is the first time you've been here, thank you for, uh, for choosing to worship with us. And uh, I hope that when you came in that uh, this felt like this was your home, and that's, uh, that's the way we want that to happen. And so we encourage you to, to contact us. We'd love to follow up with you, let you know a little bit more uh, about the church. And again, that first step's program uh, that happens at 11 o'clock. That's an awesome opportunity to try to get to see who we are and what we're all about. Otherwise, I think you have to learn that through osmosis, and that takes uh, quite a bit of time. So we just finished up this uh, series called I Love My Church, and I hope that was meaningful for you. We had some groups that were meeting during that uh, series that were kind of dissecting what uh, Randy was sharing from the stage. And we'll do that again in the fall with some other series, Uh, but that was an awesome way uh, to just develop our love for this church, this body of Christ uh, that we call Journey Church. And so I get the privilege of kicking off our new series, and it's called The Big Jesus. And uh, it's a great title because there's nothing bigger uh, than Jesus in our mind here at the church. And so what this is going to be is we're going to be walking through the book of Colossians. And so I'm not sure we've ever done that before. Uh, But this is uh, a letter. Uh, It's called an epistle, which is just a fancy way of saying uh, a formal letter. And so we're going to be walking through this kind of verse by verse. But I wanted to kind of set the groundwork first. I want, you know, these Colossians, you know, they're from a place called Colossia. Some people say Colossae. Some people say Colossia. Either one's okay, but we're going to stick with Colossia. And so this is a place that was in Paul's time in a place called Asia Minor. I've got a map up here for you. I love maps. I mean, I really love maps. Is Jimmy Chisholm in here? Because Jimmy, we, we walked through the life of Christ, and, and he had one question when we got started. Why do, why do we have to know all this geography? And I said, Jimmy, just be glad you, it's not math. So, uh, but I love maps, and I, I love this map specifically. And we just pick on Jimmy because he picks on us, okay, just to let you know. So, amen, there you go. So we can see that Colossia is in what we know today as, as modern-day Turkey. And so this is, it's kind of interesting, this city was, was in the same region as the seven churches that we hear about in the book of Revelations. Actually, it's about 15 miles from a place called Laodicea, which is one of those churches that's mentioned in the book of Revelations. And you can see it's pretty close to Ephesus. And so this is a neat map because it shows this kind of travel path that it would take to go to Rome. And so that's the reason that's significant is because Paul writes this letter, and Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison in Rome, which is about 1,100, about 1,200-mile journey. And in those days, with their rudimentary means of travel, that was a big deal. And so that was quite a journey from Paul to leave and go from Ephesus to, uh, to Rome. And so that's where it is. You can see the, uh, the boot, which is Italy, and to the east you will see Syria, and below that is, is Israel. 
and it's uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. So that's where Colossia is, just to kind of give you some background. And so I want to talk about the people of Colossia too, the Colossians. They were living in this, this town, and it's reported that this, this town, this city, Colossia, used to be this burgeoning Roman city, but it said that in Paul's time, it was kind of a shadow of what it used to be. But there was some crazy stuff that was going on in Colossia. And so there was uh, angel worship. And so specifically, they were worshiping the archangel Michael. They said that maybe he did some crazy miracles there. And Gnosticism was pretty prevalent, which we could talk a long time about what Gnosticism is. It's not really a religion. It's more of kind of a state of mind. But basically, the Gnostics, they didn't believe that Jesus was... Was, was a deity. They didn't really believe in the humanity of Jesus. They kind of saw Jesus as some kind of a mythical figure. And so it's pretty pagan stuff that's going on in Colossia. And so I think the reason Paul might be writing this letter to this church is because that pagan culture, I think, is starting to seep in to the church. And, and the, the true uh, truth of Jesus was kind of being set aside a little bit. And so he's going to be warning them about that. And so like I said, this epistle is a, is a, is a letter. Uh, that's what epistle means. And it's written directly to uh, the church of Colossia, but indirectly to the church at Laodicea. Because Paul says, once you've read this, please send this along to, to the church of Laodicea and read it to them. And so it starts off with encouragement. Paul gives a salutation, and he is encouraging the church. And he's letting them know that he and Timothy are praying for the church. And they're lifting them up, and they're supporting them. And so it's encouraging. And then the second part of the letter is a little bit of admonition or correction. He's letting them know that there's some things that are going on that really aren't right. And that they need to, to be care, take care to, to not let those things proliferate in the church. And so then he finishes again with encouragement. And that's a pretty good model if you're going to write a letter. You know, when I was in business, we tried to follow that. You'd always start with the good news, kind of deal with the bad news, and then finish with good news. And so Paul's letters uh, pretty much followed that model, all the letters. Paul wrote uh, most of the New Testament, as a matter of fact, in his epistles. And so that's the, the model it followed. And so, church, uh, so Paul corrected churches when things were kind of going a little crazy. I know to the Galatians, he wrote a letter that was warning them that they were being a little too conservative, that they were kind of going to the right of God. And so if we ever start to go too far right of God, I think maybe we ought to scoot over just a little bit. And so he was warning them about that. They, they loved God's rules so much that they were adding to it, and they were really treating each other pretty harshly and judging each other as if none of them had flaws. Of course, we know they, they did. Then he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. And he was telling them, you know, you're getting to be a little too liberal. He was warning them about their liberalism. See, they were condoning or turning a blind eye to things like sex outside of marriage and, uh, and even homosexuality. And specifically, there was a son that was sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, that's called incest, right? And so Paul was saying, not only are you turning a blind eye to that, but you're celebrating that. And so I, I kind of have a feeling that they maybe thought that they were enlightened 
uh, above all the other people that, that maybe took offense to this. And so Paul was saying you're being too liberal. So if you're too far to the left of God, I think you ought to scoot over as well. And so that made me think of a statement, something that God's been working in my life and in my heart. Because if you all know me, I lean conservative. I do. That's how I was raised. That's, that's kind of my mentality. And so that's kind of how I lean. And so I've, I've struggled with this over the past few years, especially in our community when we've had to deal with things uh, that are creeping into the church. And so I, I've come to know this. God has, has taught me this over the past several years. And I, and I came up with this statement. This is purely mine, so it's, it's worth whatever you think it's worth. 50 cents or a cup of coffee, whichever one's cheaper. Uh, but I came up with this statement, and I believe it's to be, to be true, at least in my heart. Jesus was neither conservative nor liberal. And I know that might break against some of you and some of your feelings, but Jesus was neither conservative or liberal. Let me try to explain that to you. I've really come to believe that through looking at the life of Christ. You walk in uh, with Jesus and, and looking at his daily life, what he did the first year, second year, third year of his ministry, and what he did in preparing for that. See, for, for example, Jesus was no threat to the government of his day. When he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, Are you the king as, as they claim you've claimed to be? What did Jesus say? He said, My kingdom is not of this earth. He was telling Pilate, I'm no threat to you because my kingdom has nothing to do with yours. My kingdom is in heaven. And when the Pharisees tried to trip him up about taxes, what did Jesus say? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And so when you look at this, when you look at Jesus's Life, I don't think you see these labels on there because he, he wasn't seeking to overthrow the Roman government, although a lot of people wanted him to. That wasn't his, his priority. It wasn't his goal. Jesus wasn't a political activist taking up conservative or liberal causes. And, I'm, and there's another thing that's a little controversial. I don't think he was bent on social activism either. I don't think he was. And for example, Jesus didn't heal everyone. Jesus didn't heal everybody. Could Jesus have healed everybody? Yes, he could have, but he didn't do that. Jesus um, didn't feed everybody. He fed masses at times between eight and 14,000 people, but that was only lunch. And they got hungry again. So Jesus didn't feed everybody. Jesus didn't pull everybody up out of poverty. Could he have done that? Yeah, I, I think Jesus could have done that. I mean, he, he's God. But he didn't do that. He actually told Judas. Judas got mad because Mary had broken this expensive jar of perfume. Judas got mad when he said, you know, I could have taken that money and we could have fed a lot of poor people with that. What did Jesus say? He said, Judas, you'll always have the poor. But you're not always going to have me. Get your priorities straight. That's what he told him. So Jesus didn't set out to eliminate poverty and I'm going to say this, it's not our first priority to eliminate world poverty. It's not our first priority. Hear me out on this. He doesn't give us social activism as our first priority. He doesn't want us to make conservative politics our first priority either. 
And so he wants us to live out our faith. So don't get me wrong. When it, when it comes to your, your right to vote and all that stuff that you have here, it's like don't leave your faith outside of that booth. Take your faith everywhere with you. I've, I've, had, I've had a conversation with a guy that says he's considering public office. And he said, I'm a big believer in the separation of church and state, and I'm going to leave my Christianity out of it. Well, I can't be a politician if that's the case, because your faith needs to follow you everywhere you go. Whether that's the grocery store or the voting booth, your faith ought to follow you. So don't hear me say any different than that. But Jesus had a priority when you look at his life. He had a focus. He was single-minded, and it was about the kingdom of God. And Jesus calls us to have a single-minded focus on the kingdom of God. And hear me this. Hear, hear me about this too. We are supposed to do good works. James says that faith without works is death. So we are supposed to do good works. But our good works have one purpose. And that's to bring people to Jesus. That's the purpose of our good works. Our good works are not the end game. They're not the end game. Bringing people to Christ is our, is our, is our end game. That's what he calls us to do. And, and here's the way I want to point that out. If, if we were collectively as a church, if we were able to make every alcoholic in Woodford County stop drinking, if we were able to make every addict put down their drugs, if we were able to pull everyone up out of poverty in Woodford County, but we didn't bring them to Jesus, then what would we have done? I would have to say we would have done very little. As a matter of fact, I think it would be kind of cruel. Okay, so you saw me on my soapbox for a few minutes. I'm going to step off of it now. And we're going to continue on talking about uh, this church in Colossia. And so what we know a little bit about the, the church. We know a little bit about the area. We know that Paul wrote a letter that first encouraged and then admonished. And so we're going to kick off this study of Colossians and I want to share with you two verses, from the, just for the first two verses. Yeah, that's right, I'm going to talk for a half an hour. My wife said, you're going to talk for a half hour on two verses? Said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. And so uh, I wanted to share with you something about growth. You know, our values are belonging to the church and Jesus' mission, growing in our faith, and sharing our story in the gospel. Those are the values we think that if we can start living out in our lives, we can move on this simple journey toward Jesus. And so today we're going to talk about growing. And so I want to share with you four things that you really need to know if you want to grow. And we're going to start with that first verse in the book of Colossians. The first thing you need to know if you want to grow is who to learn from. If you, if you, want, to, if, if you want to grow, you're going to have to figure out who you can learn from. And that opening line of the book of Colossians, the salutation is this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. And so the question is, is Paul a good guy to learn from? Is Paul a good guy to learn from? Who is Paul? What do we know about him? He started out as Saul. Started out as Saul. Now, he wasn't friendly to Christians when he started out at all. As a matter of fact, he, he persecuted Christians. He was responsible for imprisoning Christians. He even killed Christians. You remember Stephen? Stephen, uh, we learned from him in the book of Acts, chapter 6. He was one of what I believe was the first deacons to be called to the church. 
And because he wouldn't quit teaching about Jesus, Paul got his Pharisee buddies together and they got in a circle around him. Paul held their coats and they threw rocks at Stephen until he was dead. They killed him. And so that was Saul. That's this Paul guy we're talking about. And so here's the interesting thing, though, as a side note. Saul was the one who started the explosive growth of the first Christian church. Saul, the enemy of God, did that. Now, how did he do that? Because his persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem pushed them out of the city, out into the areas of Israel and into other countries, and they took root in those areas. And guess what? They took the gospel with them. Isn't it crazy the way God works? That God used the worst enemy of the church to kick things off and get it started? I just think it's cool. I think that's neat. And so it took root. Then, then Saul was on his way to Damascus and Jesus knocked him off of his high horse. I mean literally. Knocked him off of his horse and he blinded him. And then he, he said, why are you persecuting my church? And then he sent him on his way. And then he brought someone into his life. And this guy discipled Saul. And he showed him, he helped develop what his calling was that Jesus would have him do. And so Saul became Paul and he saw the light. And he became this, this giant for Christianity. He became this, this, this apostle that Jesus appointed. And you know what? I, they, they didn't really trust it, the, Christ, the first Christians. When Paul came into their meeting, I wouldn't have invited him to a meeting. I mean, my gosh, he just killed a guy. But his conversion was real. His conversion was very real, and they accepted him in. Um, and that's God's miracle in itself. And so, I think he was prepared by his past. Saul was a Pharisee. Saul sat at the foot of a rabbi and he learned the word of God. He learned the Torah and I think he knew it stone cold. And then Jesus showed him what it really meant. And so he was prepared. Saul was really good. Paul was really good at encouraging people. He was good at taking ministers, uh, young guys like Timothy, under his wing and raising them up to be fathers of the church. And he was really good at offering correction with grace. And so he was prepared by his past as a Pharisee for his ministry. And you know, I had to, he, his life is worth modeling. His life is worth modeling. And I wanted to share with you something that happened this, this past week. And a lot of you know, I, just, I had surgery on my arm and I've been going through the torture. They call it physical therapy. And so I, I was at this, this appointment and uh, I was wearing my Journey Church hat. And uh, this, uh, the physical therapist asked me, now, now what are you all, you guys over there at Journey Church, is your opinion starting to change about homosexuality and about gay marriage? And I said, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and so I said, what do you mean? And I, I said a prayer real quick there too, by the way. But uh, I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, it's, you know we're, we're learning that it's, that it's not such a bad thing. And I says, are you changing your mind about that? And I said, look, everyone who comes through our door is welcome. And we are not going to, to push you away. But we cannot take what we believe about our current thinking and modify the Bible uh, to fit that. 
And I said, I do believe that, that the Bible is clear about gay marriage. And she said, oh, but it wasn't just Paul that said that. And then, then our, our conversation got interrupted, and so I didn't get to finish it, and hopefully next week I will. But, uh, but the bottom line is, first, before I say anything else, Jesus affirmed what God created in marriage. He referred to, in the book of Matthew, uh, the statement in Genesis where God established marriage between a man and a woman. Look that up for yourself. That's in the book. And so, but what, what I started thinking about when I was driving home was, she just said, she just discounted Paul. And I, I thought, that's, that's curious. And so somebody's teaching her that, I'm, I'm thinking. And so I, I kind of looked it up in the progressive church. What this new thing that's happening now is they're trying to say, well, Paul was just a guy, and he was kind of a homophobe, and, and his, his writing shouldn't even be in the Bible. I mean, there are people out there that are thinking that right now. And so let me tell you, uh, for one thing, write a few letters, send them through a few churches, and in 2,000 years, tell me if people are still talking about it. I mean, Paul was an apostle appointed by Christ, and so we can't diminish Paul. But let me tell you this. Why is Paul's life worth modeling? Well, Paul gave us the reason because he told the people that he, that he wrote to, he said, imitate my life because why? Because I imitate Jesus. Amen. And so the reason Paul's life is so powerful isn't because of Paul, it's because of who he follows. Amen. Paul was imitating Christ at every step of the way. And, you know, the more I learn about Jesus, the more I learn that uh, Paul's model uh, is adequate. So if you want to grow, you've got to know who to learn from. And I would argue that Paul's a good example. The next thing you've got to know is what God's will is for you. What God's will is for you. That, that first verse, we're still in the first verse, by the way. Paul said, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. I think Paul knew what God's will was for him. You know, we derived our mission and our vision statement not out of anything that we created uh, on our own. It came from Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, and Matthew 28, the great commission. We want to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus because we love God, we love people, and we want to make disciples that make disciples. And we didn't make that up. That's what Jesus, that's his last words. That's what he gave us. That was the last command that he gave us. And so here at Journey Church, we believe that should be every that that is the will that God has for every Christian for every believer everyone who accepts Jesus as their savior that is there that is God's will for them but we all have different skills we all have different talents we all have different gifts and we all have different passions to get that done we all have different ways of making that happen and so bringing people to Christ and teaching them to be a disciple that should be our personal mission, using our God-given gifts, skills, and talents, and passions. You can find those people in the places that you like to go. You can. You can <clears throat> excuse me. You can find those people in the places that you have to go. You can find those people in the grocery store. You can find those people at the gas station. You can find those people on the golf course. You can find those people at the lake. As we go about our day-to-day -day lives, that's where we can find those people. And I'm going to tell you this, and I want to emphasize this. The staff of Journey Church cannot fulfill the mission of the church by themselves. 
It's the church that's going to fulfill this mission, not just five people. Now, I believe it's our job to equip you and to encourage you and to walk alongside you to help you get there. And it's nothing more, there's nothing more. I can speak for, for everybody that, that's a minister here at Journey Church. There's nothing more than we would ra- that we would rather do and is to help you figure out what your gifts, your talents, and your skills, and your passions are. Real quick, because this is kind of a sidebar, but I just had recently, I've been having a discussion with a friend that I've just met. He lives out in Kansas. And I've had these frivolous little hobbies and things that I've suppressed and pushed aside saying, that's, that's, not, that's, that's just not what I should be doing in ministry. And he's saying, are you passionate about them? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about them. And he says, well, then leverage that. And so leverage what you're passionate about in making disciples and sharing the gospel. So what's, what is God's call for you? Uh, again, we would love to help you figure that out. So the next thing you need to know, important thing you need to know if you want to grow, is you need to know who you are. In verse 2, Paul says this, to the saints in Christ at Colossia who are faithful brothers. Paul called us saints. Can you get your head wrapped around that? I'm not rushing out and putting that on my business card yet. You know, do you think you're a saint? Do you feel like a saint? Paul called them saints. You know what the Catholic process is for sainthood? Pretty stringent. First, you, you, have, to, you have to be well known. Your works have to be well known. And the, the second requirement is pretty harsh. You've got to die. You can't be alive and be a saint in the Catholic Church. Then the next thing, you have to have a miracle attributed to you. And then they send out a team, and they investigate the miracle. And if they confirm that that miracle happened, then you've got to have another miracle that's attributed to you. And when that happens, if they investigate it and they say that, yes, that happened, then they get in a room, they talk about it, they discuss it, they vote on it, boom, you're a saint. Then they put pictures on candles and sell them, and then you get a medal. And some of the more popular ones have a holiday named after them. Now, that's a pretty impressive process, right? And I'm not, I'm not knocking my Catholic friends. I'm not trying to do that. I know Catholic people, Catholic friends that are ardent followers of Christ, and in that we have fellowship, right? But that process, in my opinion, is not biblical. Let me tell you what the Protestant process for sainthood is. You express with your mouth that you believe in Christ, that you have faith in Jesus, that He is your Savior. Boom, you're a saint. You don't even have to die. Not yet, anyway. You have to die to yourself, but we keep on living. And so that is, I think that is biblical because Paul is saying if we're believers in Christ, we're saints. That's who we are. That's who we are. That's our identity. You know, we have this, uh, we have this um, phrase, I'll call it, that's come about in our society. It's called identity politics. I, I don't think there's anything more destructive that's come about. And to me, what, identi- what identity politics means is I've got this label that either I've put on myself or someone else has put on me, and then lines get drawn, and I have to go on my side, and I have to despise anybody that doesn't agree with me. That's identity politics in our culture today. You know, I'm Republican, so, I, so Democrats are the enemy. I'm a Democrat, so I can't, I can't like Trump supporters, right? 
I've got to hate them. You know, I'm straight, so I despise gays. I'm gay, so I can't trust straight people. That's become the identity politics. That's why our nation is so divided right now. It's because we've adapted this identity politics as a cultural norm. It's not our identity, folks. That's not our original identity. When I was a kid, when I grew up in a very legalistic church, I was called a sinner. And I was told every day I had to get up and earn my salvation. And then a lot of people kept pointing out how I wasn't really doing a good job. And so by the time I was a teenager, I thought, I'm doomed to hell. There's nothing I can do. I walked away from the church for a while because of that as, a, as an adult. I had a good foundation, and that was, that was a praise, right? But, but I was a sinner. That was my identity. But you know, that's not God's original identity for us. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that's our identity. God made man and woman in the image of Him. And then we walked in the garden with Him. We communed with Him. We had dominion over all creation. That's our identity. Chapter 3 just reveals that we have a sin nature and we made a choice. But that's not who we are. You know, Jesus lived out Genesis 1st. Uh, first chapter, second chapter, he lived that out perfectly. That's why they called him the second Adam. He was man as God intended man to be. And we are his saints. That's, that's, who, that's who Jesus is. That's what he does. We are not sinners. We are saints. Our sainthood isn't achieved, folks. It's received. It's received from Jesus. You know, there was this phrase that was attributed to Martin Luther called the Great Exchange. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's kind of, kind of, it is what it says it is. Jesus takes your place and he puts you in his place. Jesus takes your ugliness and he gives you righteousness. Jesus takes death and he gives you life. Jesus takes your sin and he makes you a saint. That's the great exchange. Do we earn that? No, we don't. But that's what Jesus does. But why? Why do I keep sinning? Why is it that, you know, I, I get this, but why do I keep sinning? And let me just say this. If there's anything you want to write down, write this down when you take it with you today. Know this, people. What you're doing is not who you are. What you're doing is not who you are. You're Genesis 1 and 2. We're only sinners by nature and by choice. And you know, on this side of eternity, we're can, we can experience progress. As we grow in our faith and as we trust God more, I think we sin less. I think you could see that in my life. I could show that to you. So that's progress on this side of eternity. But on the other side is perfection. So we're going through progress. When we stand before a holy God, then we'll receive perfection. And we're not going to sin anymore. Man was, got, was what God wanted man to be in the garden. And when we chose sin, then that kind of got turned upside down. God's order kind of got upset, but Jesus restores that order. He's the only thing that can ride our ship. He's it. 
And it's by faith in Him that we become righteous. And there's nothing short of faith that's going to help us achieve that sainthood that Paul's talking about. So we've got to know who we are. And finally, if you want to know how to grow, you've got to know the fatherhood of God. You've got to understand that. In that chapter 2, Paul said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Wouldn't you say the world is performance-based? Our world today, isn't it performance-based? I mean, seniors, you know, if you do well, you get an A, right? If you get an F, see you next semester. I mean, it's performance-based, right? What about work? I mean, in work, if we do a good job and we... we um, we go above and beyond. We work more than 40 hours. You know, sometimes we get raises. We get bonuses. You know, if you don't do your job sooner or later, it's nice knowing you, right? And in sports, I mean, my goodness, in sports, we keep score. And so winners get a trophy. Losers get depressed. I mean, that, it, it's a performance-based uh, world that we live in. Relationships. Relationships are performance-based. You know, yesterday was, uh, Chris and I, it was our 28th wedding anniversary. And I would have to say, yeah, there's a couple people clapping for that. I'm still happy about it. Okay. It's a long time. Uh, but 30 years ago, if I'd treated Chris poorly, we might not even be living in the same city right now. You know, and if a, if a couple is dating and, and one is, is treating the other poorly, it's probably not going to last, right? And so, yeah, relationships are performance-based. But all that I'm talking about, that's, that's what the world sees. The world, world relationships, worldly relationships are performance-based. But your relationship with God is not performance-based. Thank you, God. Isn't that a praise? That, that there's nothing I can do that's going to diminish God's love for me, that's paternal. That's paternal. You know, I'm a, I'm a dad. Coolest thing in the world to be is a dad. You know, and um, I know I learned more about the fatherhood of God before my son was even born. And, you know, he's 24 years old uh, as of a couple of days ago. He's six foot four, weighs a little more than 200 pounds, and he's still my little boy. As a matter of fact, he's out in the halls keeping you secure today. And so I love my son, and there's nothing I think that he could do that could ever change that. And that's the picture of God the Father. I think that's why he makes us parents. I think that's why this design is so that we can understand the love of the Father through our sons and our daughters. I really believe that. I feel that myself. Um, you know, he is our Father. And it's not performance-based. I tested my dad when I was younger. Oh, boy, did I test him when I was a teenager. And my son tested me. And my dad corrected me in a big way. And at times, I had to correct my son. But, you know, I, it was all out of love. It was all out of love. You know, there's times when God is going to let us go through some bad stuff. I, I personally believe that there's times when God might even correct us. But it's from the love of a father. It doesn't mean that it's conditional. It just means he loves us and he knows what's best for us. 
God is our Father, and we need to understand that. God loves us like we love our kids, even more than that. And love's a gift. It's not something we achieve so we can brag about it. It's a gift that's given freely from God. God loves you. God loves you like a father loves his kids. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? Do you believe that's true? Now let me ask a hard question. People looking from the outside into your life, would they see that you believe that? Now I'm not talking about are you perfect. I'm talking about is everything about your faith, is it, is it visible? Are you living a life that says, I know that there's a creator that sent his son to this earth to die for me, to save me from an eternity in hell? Is the way you're living your life, does it look that way? I mean, we believe, I've said this before, we believe a crazy thing when we believe that the creator of the universe sent his son down to, to live among us and that this guy uh, lived for 33 years and he willingly went to a cross and he died on it so that I don't have to and then three days later he was raised from the dead that's a pretty crazy thing to believe and I've always asked this question how can we believe that and, and it's not reflected in the way that we live I talked a little bit about priority I really, man, I'm struggling. I really want to make my faith life my priority over everything else. I don't want to leave it here when we leave here at noon and live a different way during the week. God is your Father, and He loves you, and He loves you unconditionally. And He gives us something to do. He, he, he's got a will for us. And so... He wants to make you a saint. If you don't know Jesus and you want, you think this sainthood sounds like something that's cool, guess what? You can become a saint today. We're, we're going to prepare. We're going into a time of communion here in just a minute. And uh, we're going to go around this Lord's Supper. We're going to come together as saints. You know, there's a lot of graduations that happen, and I saw on Facebook there's a lot of dinners. We celebrate around the table. And Jesus gave us that as a model as well. And so we're going to come around the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate. And if you're not a Christian here today and you want to become a saint, I'm going to, I'm going to stay up here after we're done and while the last song is playing. I would love to walk you through that. And I would love to, if you're a Christian here and you want to take your next step, I would love to personally help you figure out what that is. My, my cell number is on the website. I don't hide from anybody. My email is on there too. I'm not hard to get a hold of. Because my, my personal mission statement is to make disciples that make disciples. And so I want to help you do that. Would you all pray with me as we go into our time of communion? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for calling us saints. Not because of anything that we did, but what Jesus did for us. Lord, I pray that you would convict us to, to learn and to grow. And uh, Lord, to take that next step and to be the person that you call us to be. Lord, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.